Hey guys, and welcome back to the Solo Podcast. This is Solo 19. Thank you very much for being patient on last week's episode. Obviously, it was my my birthday, so I went away from Friday until Sunday to Belgium. We went to Brussels, Brussels and Bruges. I went with Danny. So last week was just crazy busy on Thursday, trying to get ahead of the game, so to speak, with with some work bits and check-ins, so to make sure that my clients came first. And I think that's a, a big priority as a coach for me is that Every single time I I have limited time, so to speak, I put my clients first. Um, and that really does mean that other things like the podcast and perhaps some video content elsewhere does take a bit of a hit. But I'd rather this takes a hit. Um, no offense to, to anyone that listens. I, I care about this podcast a lot. I care about the growth of it. But I, I care about my clients the most because ultimately they are the ones that are paying for a service and those are the ones that that sort of deserve a service so that's the way that last week worked but um i guess that kind of leads me nicely into sort of an update on where i'm at so we've got a couple of weeks to catch up on so the week before i went away to belgium was actually pretty damn good some really good sessions and not necessarily feeling like i massively needed a deload or massively needed to pull back but with belgium coming around it just worked so well that i was going to take the four days off, so Thursday was obviously a massively busy day with work. So I took Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. Obviously, the trip was only Friday to Sunday, but Thursday, like I said, was super busy. So it just worked kind of nicely, and I think that these things come at a time that usually usually work pretty well for me. And I think that taking the four days off comparatively to taking deload-style sessions, so for me, time off as opposed to reduced volume and intensity just does make me come back a little fresher across the board. So obviously after a standard deload, you'll come back pretty mentally fresh because you're ready to train hard again. But I think what I'm coming back to from a four-day deload of just not training is obviously a wealth of motivation for training because I've not trained at all. But also my joints, my tendons, ligaments sort of just feel much, much better as opposed to when like I come back after just a normal generic deload and like little niggles are still there, like things just don't feel a little bit tight, a little bit sore. So I'm much, much happier with doing the four days off. I think mentally for me, it works a lot better as well because I really struggle to go in and do the deload sessions like I've talked about before with you guys. So took a deload and then came back in Monday for or for leg training. Uh, I trained with Brad. The video will actually be on the site today. So if you haven't already joined the site, uh, join the other 620 people that are on there at the moment. So my goal is to get that to 1,000 by the end of the year. Um, and it <laughs> makes me so, so excited to, to, to even say that number. Like you know, the site's been going for about a year and a half now. And Obviously, it's, you know, other sites grow faster than mine, and I'm sure that there's people that are way ahead of me, and I know there are. You know, I, I'm, I'm subscribed to a lot of sites. One of the questions is which of the sites I am subscribed to, which I'll go through later, but I am very happy to be where I'm at. I'm very grateful, and I think that that's um, something that I just, I just, I'm really ready to pour a lot of my time and energy, and of course, like money as well into it, because, you know, I'm paying for videographers not only to film my sessions but also other people's it's not exactly a cheap endeavor but uh, it's something that I'm very confident will pay off and this is the ROI that you need to think about when you're doing things that want to be big in the future like if you're doing something now and you're expecting to earn money straight away and you're expecting to be like in a profitable situation straight away have some patience like being a coach isn't always profitable straight away obviously the you know, the investment is low, but still, you've got to be patient. Patience, patience, patience with anything you're doing, anything business-wise. You know, I'm not the, the best person to talk about with business, but I'm definitely someone who can give a lot of experience in terms of what I've learned over the last five years of essentially running my own business or businesses. And, you know, patience is one of the biggest key factors that you've got to have when, when looking to build it to whole new levels. Business, um, patience and investment is literally like two of the key variables. Whether that's your time or whether it's money, investment is pretty damn key. So yeah, that's that. Um, and then yeah, so Tuesday was was pushing. This was this was okay. So just again returning into normal training. Um, no huge sort of PBs on that day. And then yesterday I did pull and, and pulled that one eighty five for 
for for uh, for ten for ten. So like some really really good numbers on on Paul. So very very happy with how that's going and just generally in a good place with training at the moment. Um, I am coming up to a point. Obviously the last progress updates. I took, I was just before Belgium at like 191.2, I think. That was my weight on that day. So I'll obviously weigh, I'm weighing myself pretty much like once weekly at the moment on my check-in day. So I will maybe weigh, I'll weigh more frequently when I go into my next phase, which will be a mini diet. Um, this is most likely going to come over the next, I say, I'll probably make it through through May without needing to do it. Um, hopefully, it depends on a few things in terms of how body composition starts to sort of go. But the way I'm seeing it is I don't, I don't think there's going to be much reason to push much higher than where I am at now in terms of body fat and body weight. Um, if it's there for the taking, I'll obviously take it. But um, I think hovering here for a little bit will probably be more advantageous and make 190 just look a little bit better. Um, and also just resensitize a little bit to not having to push so much food in um, at some point by doing a mini diet. But we'll see. I'm only going to pull the plug on, on one when I really need one. But I think periodizing your season does make sense. And I know that I can make 190 look better if I bring it down to, let's say, let's say I brought it down to like 170. Like I lost 20 pounds very, very quickly. And then I brought it all the way back up to 190. That would give me probably the whole rest of the year to bring it back up to that point. Um, and that just then, then again sets me up for... Um, a better start to 2020 in general as opposed to being like you know over 200 pounds and just like be so full bloated distended so i will see how things go but that's my current plans and uh, that's what i'm looking towards but no immediate diets or anything like that i'm definitely committing still to to pushing uh pushing body weight in the right direction and, and keeping making progress in the gym because body composition is holding okay so i'm not too too uh, overboard yet in terms of body fat um, but even like from a personal standpoint I I don't like being this weight that much um, I like it in some ways I like feeling big in the gym I like feeling strong and I don't have any issues with that at all and I think I've gotten better at handling it but I'm not a fan of the way that I look a lot of the time um, and that's I think quite huge in terms of just your general confidence and even confidence when you're training because if you're not really a fan of the way that you look it doesn't lead into great sessions because your confidence just drops. So, yeah, but that's that. You know, it's not it's not a huge point for concern. It's just something that I'm thinking about right now in terms of where I'm going to head next. And obviously the mini diet will sort of set me up a little bit better for, um, you know, future phases, like I've said. So anyway, let's crack into the, the questions as always. There were some really, really good ones this week. So again, thank you very much for, for asking them. And I appreciate um, every single question that we get. So... First question is, well, first couple of questions actually are on the RDL. So quite a lot of questions on the Romanian deadlift and where to place it, frequency and, and some cues. So the first question is sort of where to place it. So in my opinion, if you're on a push-pull legs or a pull-push legs uh, split or even a hybrid of pull-push legs upper lower, I would always do it on a pull day. Um, the reason why is because I feel as if you can get away with doing it on a pull day. Um, and actually have a little bit of blood flow to that to the upper back and actually be able to lock your upper back and and keep like a little bit more stability for that movement on that day. The only other way that you'd be able to put everything into an RDL variation is that if you did it like first up on a leg day, because let's think about it. If you have an RDL and a squat variation on one day, you're like that how demanding those movements are both like neurally and also the the central fatigue that you're going to gather from one movement to the next in terms of the actual in in the session central fatigue um is huge so your ability to like pour maximum output into that rdl is therefore diminished so i i think that doing it on a pull day allows it to be your biggest move of the day um it encompasses a lot of the erectors as well which obviously we want to build up in that in these pull days so for me I've seen the best results in terms of progressing the RDL and moving it forwards and getting it to the strongest ever. Like, put it this way, like, you know, uh, quite a while ago, like, 180 for, like, three or four was my max on, on an RDL. Um, and that was when I placed it, I think, secondary after a hack. Now, I'd be able to do that now, but it would just be, it would just take away from the movement so much more. So when you're looking to really pour everything into an RDL variation... 
situate it sort of secondary, uh, sorry, situate it sort of primary in a pull day, and I guarantee like it will just skyrocket. Um, you, also with frequency, so a lot, a couple of people are asking like, how many times a week can we RDL? I, I would say that once is probably going to be your upper limit. So if you did twice, the way that I would rotate that is, so let's say you're doing two hip hinge variations per week. I would actually have a slight change in the way that you're doing it. So whether you go from a barbell to a dumbbell, fine. Whether you go from a barbell to uh, like a standard barbell to a barbell hip band, so hip banded RDL again, prioritizing the glutes a little bit more in that mo in the, sort of the, the point of hip extension. So you're placing a bit more tension at the, the foot of the, getting it fully short or getting the glutes fully short in that range. So you're get prioritizing the glutes a little bit more um, on that movement. Whereas on the, the other one, obviously you lose a little bit of tension at that, that peak range or the top range of the RDL without a hip band. So you could do a hip banded RDL on one day, non hip banded the other. Uh, you could do a slow eccentric RDL on one day or even a paused RDL on one day and then a normal, normal standard RDL on the other. Again, just having a slight variation will allow you to sort of progress it a little bit more linearly than if you were to just do one RDL. Because the thing is, if you're a newbie, you'll be able to get away with just RDLing twice a week and make linear progression on that movement. But you're an, only a newbie for so long. Like you're not gonna be able to continually progress a basic RDL forever. It's just not gonna be possible. So that's what I would say there. And in terms of cues, these are very individual, I feel like some people work really well with some, some basic cues. Some people work well with some more in-depth cues on the RDL if they really struggle with hip hinges. But for me, it's, it's I lead with the hips, so I make sure the hips are going back. That's my primary call for the first phase of the movement. Um, and actually, in that position, before my hips go back, I'm actually trying to sort of bring my shoulder blades back just a little bit. Um, and then I'm trying to keep my head in, in a somewhat of a neutral position. I sometimes look up just a tad, just because I feel like that, that makes me feel more comfortable. Um, and then I also, as soon as I start lowering the bar, lowering the bar, my hips are going back. I brace and I try and keep those elbows in a locked position. So I, I don't mind if my shoulder blades round a little bit. So we're getting some thoracic rounding, which is your upper back. Um, I don't really mind too much because that's actually for me, sometimes a stronger position to be in a slightly, uh, slightly rounded thoracic. Um, and it's a lot of, it's how a lot of strong deadlifters pull. Um, so I don't mind too much about that, but also I'm really focusing on not allowing my lumbar spine to round because obviously if we get lumbar, if we get lumbar flexion, we're going to roll into a lot of issues with, uh, with, with lower back injuries or immense fatigue in that area area. So for me, those are my cues bracing. And then I actually like to feel the load, feel like the, the weight in my heels a little bit more than any anywhere else. I think if you start to feel the load at the bottom in your midfoot or even worse, your toes, you'll find the bar gets taken away from your body um, and you'll get dragged away and the tension will actually go more into your upper back than your hams, your glutes, your erectors, etc. So keep the bar nice and close. I like actually to keep it as close to my shins as I can. Um, and then again, at the bottom, I think a lot of people miss out on the drive through the floor. So really try and like almost leg press the ground away because that's going to allow you to create power output from that very bottom position, which is obviously going to be the toughest point. So that's what I would think with the RDL. Um, so that covers cues um, and that covers frequency um, and that covers where to to place it in in your sessions and in the micro cycle as well so next question is opinion on sort of hobbies outside of bodybuilding so can we do other hobbies is it okay to to have other things that you're doing so like football basketball hockey whatever so the thing is like for me i have a lot of clients that actually do other hobbies outside of bodybuilding i have no problem with it at all the thing is obviously what you've got to be aware of is that the injury risk of some certain other activities are is, is something that could interrupt your bodybuilding. So for example, football, like the injury risk of, you know, you rolling on your ankle or you getting tackled and getting hurt is is fairly high. And if you're dieting down for, for contests and you're getting ready for shows and then you get someone like jump and tackle you in your ankle and you can't put any, any weight on your ankle for a week and you can't walk or do steps or train legs, you're kind of fucked. So 
it really comes a comes to a point of like what do you want to prioritize the most so for me apart from like small little things that i like doing outside of bodybuilding i i don't do anything else and the reality is i don't really i know it sounds silly because i probably do if i wanted to really make the time i could but i don't really have the time to to do other other hobbies outside of bodybuilding you know like for me i'm all in on bodybuilding so it doesn't mean that you have to be all in it doesn't mean that anyone has to be all in um, if anything, if the hobbies create enjoyment and there's something that you love doing, um, there's something in, intriguing, interesting and provide motivation and, and some degree of happiness for you, then you should absolutely keep them in. Um, and I don't think that people need to have the perspective of that, you know, if you're doing bodybuilding, that's all you can do because I think that's downright ridiculous. You don't need to just do bodybuilding to be a good bodybuilder. And, it, and in fact, a lot of the time, the stress that you'll cause by thinking that all you can do is bodybuilding is so ridiculously high that actually doing something outside of bodybuilding to chill you out a little bit will probably be a good thing, okay? So that's my opinion on sort of like um, outside of bodybuilding hobbies, um, but I don't personally have any, not really. So next question is, is quite a, a lengthy question, but I wanted to answer it. I'm actually going to get my phone here as well because um, this particular individual asked sort of a bit of an extended question on DM. So, so basically, it's just sort of a, a, a wide open question on like the UK FBA and how the shows are specifically ran and a few questions on like categories and things like that. So I'm going to roll through what he sort of said here. So the first question is how many qualifier shows take place in the UK? So at the moment... I believe there is five qualifiers, um, but I'll have to double check that. Um, like I said, I said to him in the DM, I said, you know, you can find out a lot of these things on the website. But I believe there is there is five UK qualifiers um, this season. So I, I can actually double check for you like right now in terms of how many UK qualifiers there is. Um, but they're situated all across the UK. So you'll be able to find one that's really, really close to you if you if you want to compete. So one, two, three, four, five. Whoa, I was right. Fuck yes. What an absolute legend. Um, so yeah, I am right. There are five. And then obviously there's the British finals as well. So there's five. In terms of how long you have to book your entry for, the absolute latest you can do is there's a two-week cutoff. So before the show, um, two weeks away from the, the competition, if nothing's changed in the rule books, um, that's the last point that you can enter. So, so get it in as, as soon as you know that that's the show that is, you're going to be targeting. Then how much it costs, you'll have to check because prices always change. So the last time I entered a UK FBA show, it was in 2017. So it's likely that some of the classes may have changed in terms of prices. Um, how many categories you can choose. So as far as I'm aware, there's been a recent change in that you you can cross over in some categories. Um, I was told in 2018 that people can't do two categories in one show. But the only thing that you need to be aware of is why the fuck would you want to do men's physique and men's bodybuilding? I just don't get that. Um, unless you do men's physique at one show and then men's bodybuilding at another, maybe... But the thing is, there's a very distinct difference between what they're looking for in men's physique versus men's bodybuilding. You are either a bodybuilder or you're a men's physique athlete. That is it. And if you're looking to enter any more categories than that, then there's no possibility of doing it because you can't do, like, there'd be no sense in reason in doing novice and open. Like, you either are a novice guy or you're an open bodybuilder. There is a novice class. Um, and again, you have to check the rule book in terms of what you are, whether you are a novice or not, based on the Federation's rules, because they're all different. But usually it means that you've not placed top three um, at any other open show. So if you've placed top three in any open show, and of course, if you've won anything, um, or if you compete, I think if you competed at a British final in an open class as well, that limits you from the novice category. So yeah, it just depends. Um, you have to check the specific criteria. There is no classic physique class. Um, the body weights. So as far as I'm aware, the last time I checked, light weights is under 70 kgs. Middle weights is under 80 kgs. And heavy weights is everything else. Okay. So that's the last time I checked though. That There may be some tight, slight changes on that. So don't quote me on it. Nothing to do with height. So the only height is the 
uh, men's physique. So they split men's physique sometimes at British finals. They have a short and a tall. They may have had a medium, but then don't quote me on that. It's been a while since I've been at one of these shows. Um, it feels like it at least, but I'm looking forward to being at the first one um, the end of May. In terms of like other things that with heights, there was there's height in bikini, but there's no height in the men's open classes. It's just body weight split. Spray tan and other ways of like tanning. So like you can obviously do your own tan, but I wouldn't recommend it. I'd use the people that are at the UK DFBA. They're very, very good. Um, Nicola Gilbert does it, and she's awesome. She's also hilarious, so I definitely use them. Um, I think the tanning the last time I had it done was like £40. So you can, you can expect to pay around about £40 for the tan. Um, and how do you qualify for the finals? So you with the UK FBA, they actually just make, they, they make the decision on that day as to whether you are suitable for going to the British final, so that they make that decision, number one, um, but it's usually the top two in the class, um, but sometimes if the class is very good, they'll send the top three, um, I've seen them actually send like, I think, I think they've sent like four people once in one category, because they were all so good, um, and it tends to be that way in most feds, um, they tend to just sort of send who is appropriate on that day, um, and obviously based on placing as well. So yeah, that hopefully answers your question, dude, and hopefully helps some other people out with regards to what the UK DFBA have to offer. And then obviously some further notes to that in, in the sense that if you win your class at the British finals, you get the opportunity to most likely be fully funded to go to America and compete. And if you are lucky enough to be competing this year, the, the end goal for you will be getting to be fully paid to go out to New York and compete. So that's a pretty damn cool prize um, uh, for for winning a British show. You know, so uh, you, you're not only British champion, but you're also flying out to New York, um, which uh, I, I will be coming to that as well. So uh, if you manage to win the British finals, I'll, I'll see you there. <laughs> I just won't be competing. I'll just be the, the chubby one in the audience as always. Uh, getting used to that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, anyway, next question. So... Someone finally asked, how am I going to be dealing with uh, sex drive dropping in my 2020 contest prep? So obviously, my my current partner and uh, Danny is going to be competing in 2020 as well. So I think that the reality is, like, there's both, there's going to be a shift in sex drive for both of us, to be honest. We're both going to be as tired as each other. So I don't think there's going to be any issues with that. Um... But it would be interesting to see because the reality is, and I think I've said this in a few podcasts before, I've not prepped before um, with a partner. So I I don't know what it's like, to be honest. Like I can feel when I'm dieting down, even though I was single, I could feel sex drive significantly dropping by fact of I just was not interested in, in females whatsoever, um, which is like kind of normal. Most males at getting into really good condition or dieting for a long period of times will most likely go like hypergonadal in terms of going below physiological ranges of testosterone. So that's going to be understandable, but it will be interesting to see sort of, um, cause obviously I, I care about Danny a lot. So it's a bit different in the sense that, um, with that added care and emotion, whether that will make a difference in terms of maintaining a sex drive um, I will see though. I will happily report on that front and give you guys some some insight. I think I've said this before in the the Q and A me and Danny did, which we'll do again soon. By the way, people enjoyed that, so we'll definitely do one again soon. So yeah, that's my opinion. Um, other than that, I won't be taking any test boosters. <laughs> um, I, I won't be doing anything like that to retain the sex drive. Um, I, I won't. the The goal of the contest prep, funnily enough, and I think Danny won't take any offense in this. But the goal of, of the 2020 contest prep is certainly not to retain my sex drive. <laughs> like, I, 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 I don't like I don't think that's the, the sole goal of the contest prep, funnily enough. So, yes, <laughs> that's that's my answer. Right. Cool. Let's move on. So any is there any foods that impact water retention or bloat when you're dieting down? So this is actually funny. So I'm going to discuss a few things here about what my opinions are on food selection and also some like some other things with regards to, 
I guess, artificial sweeteners and, like, sugar-free jellies, etc. So, I'll talk about a few things here. So, my personal opinion on, like, foods to avoid is very simple in the sense that if you're having anything that disagrees with your digestive tract, you need to immediately reassess that. And that's not even in a diet phase. That's in a surplus too. You need to think about, okay, like, why is this not sitting well with me? Um, what happens if I remove it? Do I feel better? Um, like, really, really assess your diet from sort of, like, you know, the ground up, like, what am I having? Well, does it affect me if I eat this at a specific time? Does it affect me if I, you know, have a specific gap between meals? And for me, like, I know that there's certain things right now in, in a surplus that I'm struggling to consume and, and feel good. So, for example, like, even like, oats at the moment I haven't consumed in months because they just feel like they just sit with me for way too long. And even, like, eating them pre-workout just doesn't seem to sit well with me anymore. Whereas, as you know, I had oats for like a long, long time, pre-workout, pre-bed, like my favorite fucking thing ever. But I'm not eating them right now because it just does not like sit well at all. Um, it doesn't cause excessive bloat, but it just makes me feel lethargic. And I think when you feel like lethargic after eating a meal, it's a sign that there is some delay or disruption in the digestive process of that food because you're taking extra energy to try and absorb what should be an easily digestible source. So yeah, for me, that's that. And then again, again in an off-season phase, a white potato just does not seem to work well with me, which is very interesting because during a diet, it's like my best friend. Like I carb-loaded on white potato for most of my shows, and I do think there's actually benefit in doing that if you want some more information on that. The reason why is because white potato is pretty dense in potassium, and the role that electrolytes play in, in peaking processes and storing intramuscular glycogen is pretty significant. So I actually like white potato for peaking if people are having it, but only provided that you digest it well, because the worst thing we can do is like change someone's peaking protocol and say, you know, let's, let's just consume all your peaking carbohydrates from white potato and and they step on stage looking like you know they've literally burst a balloon inside their midsection um or blown up a balloon inside their midsection so to speak so yeah um that's what i would say in terms of food selection and then bloating wise so this is an interesting one and this is also quite coinciding with like the psychological effects of a diet phase so for me i don't like to i it's going to sound crazy, but I, I consumed like a grand total of maybe one diet drink or really like none really during my entire 2017 contest prep, like none. And that's not to sound like cocky or like trying to show off or anything like that, but it's just because I knew the effect that they would have on me. And it's not massively cosmetic. It's more so psychological. So when I had something like that, I immediately started craving more sugary items and this is why I think that I said this to George in his last check-in. I said to him, I was like, mate, we really need to look at all these. You know, he's not having crazy amounts, but they're slowly eking up. Sugar-free drinks, sugar-free jellies. And the thing is, all, all he's going to want is more of the sugar-free jellies, more of the sugar-free Pepsis. And eventually, the sugar-free jelly and the sugar-free Pepsi is not going to be enough to satisfy the craving. And he's going to start to want cookies, start to want... Uh, you know, weird sugary items, pancakes, waffles, you know, all of these things that you can't fucking have. And the last thing you want when you're dieting is just to be thinking about all these things you can't have. All you want to focus on, and I know it sounds crazy and a bit boring, but you kind of just want to be a bit robotic. You want to just eat your food. You want to know that your food's going to satiate you and just crack, crack the hell on. You know, at the end of the day, like, I don't mind a sugar-free drink here and there as long as it's not creating like a weird relationship with these these items, which I see are across the board, like a, a quite a, a very good link between people who crave sugary shit and the people who are consuming a wide a wide amount of like sweetener, uh, sugar-free drink, sugar-free jellies. Um, and I also see within myself, when I prepped for the first time in 2014, I was relying on a lot of sugar-free drinks and a lot of sugar-free condiments and things like that, sauces, everything. Like, even at 2017, I didn't have any sauce. I didn't use sauces. I didn't put sauce on my on my potato and chicken meal. I just ate it with salt, and that's it. Um, and I know, again, this sounds like Groundhog Day or something like that. It's not meant to sound that way. This is meant to be helpful because when I finished that meal, I was like, 
okay, that meal was like enjoyable and it satiated me. I didn't immediately want, I didn't immediately crave anything else. But when I was using lots, lots of sugar-free drinks, lots of sugar-free sauces, like I crave something different. I crave like a sweet thing after having a savory thing. And that's not right. Like that's interruptive. That's annoying. It's frustrating, you know, and you create, you're already creating a bit of a, a wacky relationship with food when you're dieting nevertheless. So adding on top of that, the frustration of wanting more of these crappy foods, it's just crazy. So like psychologically, I think it's much, much better to stick to, I know, and I know again, it sounds crazy, but stick to bland foods, you know, save the sources and the things that are going to make food taste better, save them for the off season. And, I, 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 and some people will just listen to this and think, ah, fuck that. Like, I need sauce to get through the diet. Fair play, you know, have the sauce. Enjoy your diet. But for me, I'm not I'm not, not about that life. I don't I don't want to... I, I won't be putting sauce on my, on my food in, in 2020, that's for sure. I, I don't even do it now, to be honest. Like, I don't, I don't really like it. Um, I just want to eat the food. So salt, salt for me is, is good enough. Um, and then again, with, with the sauces and things like that, you don't know whether they're causing water retention until you remove them. And then when you remove them, you'll start to just immediately want them back. So yeah, that's, that's my opinion on sort of sauces, condiments, sugar-free items, um, periodize your ability to use these as well. Like don't add them in at like crazy amount of weeks out from your show and then just have to like increase, 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 increase. Same goes for like voluminous foods. So I had had a chat with one of my figure clients last check-in and I said to her, like she was already using like these high volume foods like cauliflower rice, lots of volume, lots of like vegetables and like vegetables fine, like use your vegetables and I like a good diversity in the diet, but she was already like creating bloat with the amount she was having. And that's not a good, not a good thing to be doing, um, especially at this stage. You know, you almost want to periodize your ability to rely on these more voluminous, less calorically dense items. And at the start of the prep, like, for example, for me, when I start prepping, I will try and keep in my calorically dense items for as long as I can until my hunger is really high. So I'll keep in any liquid meals that I'm having at that point. I'll keep in my granola in my last meal. And I'll keep that in for as long as I can until my hunger's giving me the sign that I'm like, okay, shit, I need to actually change that granola meal for an oatmeal because I need to have that fullness. I need to change my rice cereal post-workout for a more whole whole food-based meal because it's not filling me up enough. So food periodization is actually a tool that I think is very, very important. It's not talked about enough because more, more and more people just follow the same food day in, day out with every single like diet phase and um you know it's, it's something that i remind people of i'm like you know why in your off season you're having this giant bowl of salad like save that for when you're dieting save that for when you're prepping and learn to control your hunger in the off season a little bit more um so that's that next question is on the importance of the posing routine when you're uh, at the show of course so i think the importance of a posing routine is pretty high the a lot of the time it is judged um whether it accounts to a lot of points or not, it's minimal, but because it, it's not going to separate you from, you know, but let's say it's close, Pose a good posing routine could definitely separate you from someone you're very closely competing against, like let's say it's for first and second, you could go from second to first by having maybe a very, very good posing routine and them having a very bad one, and also, to be honest, when you put in like 30 weeks plus of dieting, or whatever, 20 plus weeks of dieting, and you step on stage and you have a shit song and you go around and you hit 44 most musculars, you're gonna look like a twat. So at least just put some effort in. And if you're not the best poser or the best choreographer, don't worry, just put in something very simple. A lot of people try and do like all of this wacky weird shit, like, and it just looks crap. It looks worse than the 44 most musculars. So just hit something basic that you can hit. Obviously, if you are very good at choreographing or you work with a posing coach, I'm going to be working with a posing coach in 2020. Um, I want to choreograph something really, really nice. So, and it just, the thing is, when you go to a bodybuilding show, the natural bodybuilding show, British final, and you watch the pro class, look at how the pros pose, and they should be all very, very good. Um, The thing is, if you are an amateur and you want to stand out, look like a pro. So when you do your posing and your 
in your fir in the first sort of like in the first uh, mandatory posing, look like a professional. Make your transitions look like a pros. You will stand out like a sore thumb in a line of a lineup of people that have not practiced their posing enough. So for you, that's going to be pivotal as a newer competitor. Posing routines and just your general flow, your transitions, your confidence on stage. If you can stand out, then you are going to get looked at way more than someone else. Like someone else might even have a better physique than you. Another really important thing in a posing routine is playing to your strong points and hiding your weak points. So if your weak, if your weak points, for example, are in the rear poses, why the hell would you come on a stage and start with like a rear double bicep? Pointless. If anything... All you do is if your rear double and your rear lat spread are really weak, don't hit them in your posing routine. Just hit all front and side poses. If your front shots are really weak, you're going to have an issue because not hitting a front shot in a posing routine is kind of hard. You just have to hit like lots of side shots and lots of transitions and maybe one like sort of half-assed front shot. But to be fair, if all your front shots are bad, you're probably not a great bodybuilder, uh, being honest. like So the more symmetrical and balanced you are, the more you can sort of hit all like for, I'm I'm not the, the best bodybuilder in the world. Don't get me wrong, but I'm fairly balanced. I don't like from front to back to side. There's no real pose that goes. Oh my god, that's weak. They're all pretty decent in terms of like cross the board similar level of 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 bodybuilder. You know, I'm not like oh my god, turn to the back, he's crap kind of thing. Um, so I hit I hit like everything. I hit front shots, side shots, rear shots, everything. Um, another big key with your posing routine is choose music that suits you so if you come on and you pose like all classical but you pose to like slipknot you're also going to look silly so pose that something suits your physique if you have like a grainy hard granite hard crazy looking physique pose to something like rock music or heavy metal or something like that for example jack thorburn a very aggressive granite crazy fucking looking physique he can pose to something like crazy like epic soundtrack movie music and look amazing. Like, I remember seeing his posing routine at British Finals. And I was fucking blown away. I was like, I was almost in tears watching it. Because it, it motivated me so much. I was like, that is fucking cool. Um, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Another guy that I really look up to called uh, James Melville. He won the lightweight class at the British Finals and the BMBF. His posing routine to uh, the song from Power called Run For Cover was amazing because it suited his physique so well he was like absolutely inside out peeled and he had this like slick back hair and he looked like a fucking boss and the song has like the word savage in it quite a lot of times and it just suited like it was just absolutely on the money anyone that saw that posing routine was probably like yeah AJ was right, and I remember like turning to Danny and saying like that. That was just one of the best posing routines ever. So make your posing routine match your physique, match what you're displaying on stage. Because if you go on stage posing to a song that doesn't suit you, it just doesn't look good. It really doesn't look good. Um, so I'm waiting for like that song that I can pick that I'm like, yeah, that's that's the one. But I I won't pick it until I know what sort of like what my physique looks like. Because I don't know what it's going to look like yet, you know. I know I have an idea. Obviously, it's going to be peels, but I don't. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and I'll, I'll pick it probably like a month out from the show, to be honest, and then start practicing it like religiously and making it so so super fluid. Um. So yeah, and then another thing, finally with the posing routine is this is something I've learned from Jeff Alberts. So again, like just years of finding out stuff from bodybuilding. Do not go from a front pose to a back pose and don't go from a back pose to a front pose. So if you're going to go from the back to the front, you have to hit a side pose first. So go from like a rear double into like a, into like a side chest and then into a front shot or go into from a front shot into a side chest and then into a, uh, a back shot. Because if you go from a front shot and then go into a rear shot, like that transition just isn't fluid. But going into a front shot and then into a side shot and then into a rear shot, like it just looks way better. The fluidity of those transitions is much nicer to look at on stage. That's my opinion, at least. Obviously, um, ask someone like Emma Hyman or Rough Diesel or something like that for their advice on posing routines. They'd probably be able to give you an even better example of what's good and what's not good in terms of posing ability on stage. 
So next question is from my man Safe. He asks what my plans are after getting the pro card. So first things first is I've got to get it. So I know he's Safe as a guy I've worked for, worked for, worked with for coming up to two years now. Um, and as a client, and I know that his belief in me is very, very high. So, um, I appreciate you, man. And I hope you're going to come and watch me get my pro card, but, um, I know that he believes that I can do it. So that's very, very nice. But in the same essence, the goal is very much to, to obviously get it in 2020. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I know that for sure, but let's say I do, let's say I do achieve that goal. Um, and I tick that box, which would be bloody amazing to be honest um it's just as crazy as when i said i wanted to be junior world champion in my in my opinion it's probably just as crazy as that so let's say i do it uh, the goals after that would be to take um as long as i can take off until my card expired um or my card had to be like like for example so i think quite a lot of the time with the WNBF, i know with the ifbb it's different as well but I'm not aiming for IFBB, um, as people know. By the way, a lot of people that watch this podcast don't quite know what pro card I'm aiming for. And a lot of people have commented in the past saying, you're delusional, you're not going to get a pro card. And they don't realize that I'm not aiming for an IFBB pro card, guys. I know that I'm not going to get an IFBB pro card naturally. Um, I'm aiming for a WMBF pro card within the World Natural Bodybuilding Federation. So drug free. That's the pro card I'm aiming for. Um, and that's attained through competing with the UK DFBA, um, either winning their British final and being of the caliber that they admit is ready for the pro class, um, or winning the overall after winning your class at the British, um, or winning the class at the British, going to the Worlds, having a class, I think it's eight competitors to make a super pro qualifier, and then winning your class, and then you get the pro card. Or if it's not a super pro qualifier and it's just a pro qualifier, then I think I have to win my class and then place, I think, in the top three in the overall at the Worlds. And then, again, that's going to be difficult because I'm going to be a lightweight and I'll be up against middles and heavies. So, again, going to be a little bit of a difficult one there. So, we will see. We will see. But um, it, it, it's certainly something that's just been in my head ever since I sort of started doing well as a junior. I was like, okay, well, this goal might actually be attainable now. And I've obviously looked up to a lot of people like Brian Whitaker, etc. that compete in the WNBF, um, Brett Freeman, you know, people who have won pro cards and done well and are in that lightweight class. And that's really what the, the aim is. So um, afterwards, yeah, it would be take as much time as I can off, improve, um, because I don't think I could be competitive in the pro cards straight, straight away. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe in 2020, I'll diet down and I'll be like, okay, maybe I could be competitive in the pro class, but I will pose in front of the best lightweight in the world. Um, I'll go and see quite regularly. I'll go down to um, uh, e either his gym or we'll meet up somewhere and we'll train and, and get a posing session in. I'll get it in with Ben Howard. Um, he'll probably be one of my biggest second eyes throughout my prep next year um, because I, I, I know that he if he says that I'm in condition, he'll probably be like I'm in condition um, and if I can get in front of the eyes of like Rich Goodzeki as well at some point that'd be fucking amazing just to see what he has to say um, and they'd be giving me a very very no bullshit honest opinion which is what I need I need someone that tells me whether I'm ready for what I need to achieve or not and if I get halfway through the diet and they're both like not really sure I probably won't end up completing the diet to be honest um because I, I don't want to compete just for the sake of competing. Um, I only want to compete if my chances of winning that British title are fucking high. And I fucking, I fucking mean that. Because um, I'm not working as hard as I'm working right now just to, like, come, to come second. Like, I'm not, I'm not willing to, to, to really do that. Um, if it means I get second and I fucking battled the guy in first, then fair play. Um, but I'm not really, I'm, I'm not really doing this for second place, put it that way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's that. Um, another one of my eyes will definitely be Lewis Rossi and probably Cuba as well. Cause obviously me and Danny are, are moving to, to Sheffield in August. So, um, I'll probably have Cuba keep a, a quite a close eye on me and, and Lewis is Lewis Rossi as well. Cause probably be two of my closest, uh, people that I know that are in the bodybuilding, uh, bodybuilding scene and know what they're looking for and can be very honest. Um, so I'll very much look forward to that. I'll have some very, very good eyes on me in 2020, um, which is bloody cool to be honest. I'm very, very, very excited for that. Uh, so yeah, that's my goals. 
Hope that makes sense, matey. So, other things, websites I am sub to. So, I am sub to, obviously, trained by JP. Um, I'm sub to Hypertrophy Coach. I'm sub to Matt Jansen's site. I am sub to Mountain Dog's site, John Meadows. Um, what other one am I sub to? Oh, yeah, Brutal Muscle. I'm sub to Brutal Muscle. Um, I want to get sub to Ollie Carson's site because I just really fucking love the guy. I should have, I, I need to sub to that. I don't even care if I, I don't watch the videos that much. I almost feel like just subbing because I want to support what he's doing because I like him a lot. Um, I will definitely be subbing to the Muscle Mentors when their site comes out. Um, me and Hannah were talking about that the other day. So their site is going to come out soon. And a lot of people think like, oh my God, what is like, why are people releasing sites? You know, they're going to be competitors. I don't care. Like, everyone's site is different. Um, at the moment, no one else is doing what I'm doing, as far as I'm aware, in terms of just documenting the natural scene and getting other people filmed in the natural scene. And if other people want to do that, then it's fine. But I will challenge them to produce as good content as I'm doing right now with as much frequency. Um, I'll definitely challenge them <laughs> to that contest. Uh, but uh, for, for now, that's like, for me, I, I'm, I'm really happy to follow and support other sites that are doing what I what I, what I want to do as well and I'll more than happily support other people's success when they're putting in a lot of hard work so yeah I don't I don't mind about being subscribed to a load of others and if anything I'm learning a lot from what other people are doing so obviously what I'm doing now with like filming Jack Thorburn and getting other people on the site and hopefully in the very near future I'll be having more people being filmed for the site in terms of their sessions um Obviously, that very much is like almost you could call it like a carbon copy of what JP was doing. But the reality is like we're all we're all going to be doing a very similar thing. So um, and obviously some people on George's videos said that I just try and emulate and copy JP. And to be honest, that's if if that's what is displayed in what I do, that's a pretty large compliment, in my opinion, because from a business perspective and a you know, a content perspective, I look up to that guy more than anything. So if I, if I, if I'm doing something that looks like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm emulating what he's doing, I'm cool with that. Um, obviously from my opinion, it's, it's different. There's a lot of things that are different about what I do. There's a lot of what, there's a lot different in what I do from a coaching perspective. Um, and I'm not copying on that front at all. I don't think there's ever copying in the fitness industry. Um, I think there's 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 just people realizing that some things work and emulating them in a way, and I think that's fine. I don't think there's any issues with that whatsoever. So that's my thoughts on on that. Um, next question: So lagging body parts for younger athletes. So this is something I'm quite passionate about as well because obviously I work with a lot of juniors, um, a lot of junior females as well as both as both females and males. Um, so. I tend to see just a general across the board, a, a, a lack of just muscle density and maturity, obviously because of the younger training age. But combined with that, I also see across most junior bodybuilders, most of them have either two issues, have one of two issues. Their upper chest is very shit. And it's just like when they diet down, there's just nothing there. In the side poses, it just looks like an absolute flat pancake. Or they have no hamstrings. Like, these two are very, very, very clear for me across the board with, with junior bodybuilders. Um, they they just seem to be body parts that for some reason density really does improve these areas. So like the density of getting very, very strong on big chest compounds. Like you know, for example, one of my old clients, um, Dan Argent. So he's the like cr crazy guy with the front, crazy front double biceps. His chest was ridiculous and the reason why it was is because he benches like 150 kilos for reps um that's pretty much the reason why so there's not many juniors doing that and likewise there's not many juniors that are rdling four plates um there's not many juniors that are dumbbell rdling 80 kgs um and there's not many juniors that are doing really heavy rdls really ever um there's a lot of juniors doing hamstring curls but not many doing heavy rdls the juniors that do do heavy RDLs are almost always the dense, the most dense from the side. You can just spot someone that RDLs heavy. You can spot someone that he deadlifts heavy, um, and you can pick them out amongst the pack. The erectors are just the biggest sign. You know, you see so many young athletes with just empty lower backs. 
you know, the lower back area just looks meh. Just looks like a flat sheath of just nothing. And that, to be honest, is not aesthetically appealing when you're in very low body fat. You want like lower back shreds like Brian Whitaker kind of thing. Like that's the detail that I want in my lower back. So those are areas that I think are lagging and to improve them, I think you just need to get very, very strong at the, the exercises that I've mentioned. So like a, a barbell bench or an incline barbell bench, get very strong at your presses um, and then also get very strong at your hip hinges. And I think that will reward, that will reward, yeah. So next question is food setup for sort of training in the late afternoon. So what should you eat throughout the day? Obviously this is more so based on like macronutrients as opposed to food sources. So I would say that if you're training in the late afternoon, you probably, it depends on like your amount of food. So if you're on just such a crazy amount of food in your off season, it doesn't really matter how well you spread your food as long as you get it in. But if you're dieting, I would say that running like protein and fat based meals for the first two meals of the day, the day would be advantageous. And then your third meal possibly being your pre-workout meal, your fourth meal or fourth feeding being your intra-workout shake your fifth being a post-workout meal, and then maybe your sixth being a pre-bed meal, um, or fifth if you don't count the intra. Um, so that's what I would say. And then obviously you'd have like pro-fat, pro-fat, pre-workout, carbs, and protein, and maybe a little bit of fat. Um, or if you're on very low food, pro-veggie, pro-veggie, and then pro-fat pro carb, pre-workout, intra-workout, obviously pro-carb. Pro um, post-workout obviously pro-carb and pre-bed if you're on very low food it would be like pro-fat or if you're on enough food it would be another pro-fat carb meal so take your pick um, that's basically what I would say to do next question comes from Simon in terms of managing urination managing urination during sleep how do we manage our urine um, so first of all you make sure that you, you shoot straight. No, I'm joking. So um, I think that when we're looking to manage our ability to not go to the toilet during the sleep, we need to first off have a curfew of, of liquid before bed. So for me, that at the moment is about two hours before bed is my last bit of water. I might have a pre-bed tea or something. My last bit of water usually comes about two, two hours before bed. Now, something we have to realize is that when we are getting leaner, because we've not got as much glycogen circulating and we've not got our body fat levels higher, our ability to actually store water in any sort of pocket, whether it be body fat or or glycogen stores, extra or intracellular, is limited. So where is the water going to go when we've consumed a lot? It's going to be just excreted. So your frequency of urination in general goes up as you get leaner. It's just the way that it works. Like everyone put these puts these like statuses up of like, oh my god, I'm traveling and I'm peaking and things. I need to go to the toilet every two hours. Now, the reality of that is pretty true. Um, when I was dieting, I'd usually wake up at least once in the night to go to the toilet. And that would be just a regular occurrence. There wouldn't be really anything that I could do to change that. Um, it would just be something that happens. So I think, one, just admitting that it's probably just going to happen a little bit more frequently. You're going to wake up and you're going to go to the toilet a little bit more often when you're dieting down. But having that water curfew, I think, is the best way to try and work around it as best as you possibly can. Hope that makes sense, mate. So the water curfew is basically all we need. And then, obviously, all your other sleep hygiene habits play a pivotal role in just allowing you to get into a deep sleep and that's pretty much it so next question is uh why i don't coach my girlfriend so it's a, a good question um and one that obviously me and danny have talked about at length so there was actually a period of time where both myself and danny were considering um me coaching me coaching her but we we both kind of came to the conclusion that it it wouldn't be the best setup um in the sense that Obviously, like, number one, I care about her a lot, and the care element is a bit difficult because when you care about someone so much, obviously, I, I care about her winning a show the most. So, like, me putting her through what needs to be done to get lean enough is absolutely fine, in my opinion. I don't really mind about that too much, but there is an element of care when it comes to, like, carbohydrates getting lower than 100 grams and you know how difficult that is and you're watching them put in the food and get hungry and get tired and it's like you're almost like inflicting that a little bit and that comes that comes across a bit almost difficult um, but I think the main reason is because I don't really want to get like a coach client relationship with my girlfriend I want to just be in a relationship with her um, 
I, yeah, so that's realistically the reason why we think that it's just going to work better that way. This is not saying that it might not happen in the future. So like, you know, maybe in future years when our relationship is even more solid than it already is. I mean, it's a very, very, very good, happy relationship. But maybe when it's just much like at a different level in terms of we've been together for several years, perhaps we could work something out in terms of me coaching her towards like a, a pro show or something like that. Um, that'd be pretty cool because she definitely will be pro at some point. So um, perhaps in the future, maybe, or maybe like off-season training programming in the future or something like that. Maybe not like as in-depth as we normally would, just like doing a bit of a programming or something like that. Perhaps, not saying never, but the reality is she's got a really good coach in the form of Luke, Luke Jen Jenkinson. So um, he doesn't coach many people, but he does a really good job with Danny. So um, I think she's got a great person to be coaching her and that's the main thing. And then it just makes means that I don't have to like worry about my clients alongside worrying about Danny and probably my clients would think, does Danny get more prioritization than us? And you know what I mean? I just don't, I don't want that. I want my business to run as my business. I want my relationship to run as my relationship. Um, I hope that makes sense and answer your question. And, um, but we're like we said to each other, you know, when we made the decision, like we'll both still be a very, very big pivotal part of our preps. Like you know, we both take our progress pictures every single week. So it's not like we're just taking progress pictures and just being like, oh, OK, yeah, cool. Send them to the coach. I will give my opinion and Danny gives her opinion on, on me as well. So um, obviously I'm my own coach. I always will be my own coach. I'm pretty confident of that. So um, I don't think I'll work well with a coach. Um there's maybe some point I'll, I'll want one or I want to learn more, but I think I learn more from just asking questions. I ask a lot of questions to other coaches. I listen to billions of hours of podcasts um, and I'll consult with people, but I don't think I'll ever need that coaching experience. I, don't, I just don't I just think I'm much better doing it for myself. Um, and I seem, it seems to be going well so far. So yeah, <laughs> not to blow my own trumpet at all. Um, but yeah, it seems to be going all right. So that's that. Um, next question is on underestimated data collection. Now, I really like this question because I think it's something that I can talk about a bit of my coaching processes that I think trump a few other coaching processes. Uh, so I'll talk about this a little bit and, and then maybe some coaches will hear this and be like, fuck, that actually makes sense. I'm going to start doing that. So I think the most underestimated data collection tool for a contest prep is non-verbal. Now, what do I mean by that? So I mean that when we're looking to collect data from a client, we don't just look at what they say. We don't just look at the numbers. We look at this. We look at this, okay? Now, this is like what I'm doing now without saying anything. That is like non-verbal expressions. So when someone films a check-in video with their face in it, there is a lot of non-verbal data collection that I take as a coach. I can tell whether someone's tired. I can tell, like, this is something that I need to work with someone over an off-season to be able to tell because I see their face in an off-season phase. I see them having a really good week and I see them having a bad week and I can tell the difference. Every single week, I am learning more non-verbal data collection from my clients by looking at their face. And every single week, something changes. Like, for example, one of my clients checked in this week. Within the first minute of the video, I could tell that something bad had happened in their week. About five minutes later, they told me that bad thing that happened. I, sp I, I literally, I could spot that they were holding something back from me. And they let it out about five minutes into the check-in. And I was like, fuck, I love non-verbal data collection. It works. Um, now, obviously, this is a whole different level of coaching. And for a lot of people, they don't want to do this. For a lot of clients, they don't want to do this. I don't, I don't have everyone, every one of my clients do videos. But everyone that can do it, does it. Because I do think there's a big benefit. Um, so yeah, non-verbal data collection. Um, and to be fair, like as much as this is purely like mostly non-verbal that you're collecting this, so looking at their facial expressions and general body language, uh, you can kind of collect it through the voice as well. So I think in this order, data collection works well. So this is the most poor level of data collection, in my opinion, for contest prep athletes is text um, because a lot of people can lie in text. You can't tell energy off of text. 
you can't tell body language off of text. I think text is meh. Meh at best. So meh is text. Second to that is voice. So voice and verbal communication is pretty good. It's a lot more solid than text. And then third and final is video. Um, video takes a whole new level of effort. Um, it takes consistency and dedication on the client side. It takes time on my side. I have to watch a video, the make notes, I have to reply. You know, myself and a few other coaches do this method. Jack, if you're watching this, you know how fucking long it takes to do video feedbacks. Um, it takes a while. But I think someone like Jack would agree, since having most of his clients change the video, I think he'd agree that the benefits do definitely outweigh the time that we spend doing it. Um, and I think that will show in the results that that, 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 that we put on stage and, and with general people um, through non-verbal communication. That's my opinion. And that's something that, funnily enough, I actually wanted to talk about in this podcast, but came through in a question. So it's really, really good. Um, I'm going to answer a few more quickfire ones. I know that people probably won't be bothered about this going over an hour. So I'm going to answer a few more that I definitely haven't covered before. So this one was a really cool question that I quite like. So... Someone asked, uh, you could pick three people's body parts from their physiques. So like three different body parts from three different people and I could have them. So what would I have? So I'd have Ben Howard's glutes fucking for sure. Like I'd have Ben Howard's glutes all day. <laughs> I wonder if I'll listen to this. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have Ben Howard's ass. Um, I would have, um, I'd have Jordan Peters erectors and lower back density, I'd have that, this would just look ridiculous, <laughs> this would just look stupid, um, and then what else would I have, oh man, I don't know the third one, um, oh Jesus, let me think, I'm trying to think of maybe a natural so I can sort of like actually compare it evenly, um, oh damn, I don't really know, I'm like lost for words now, I think I'd probably have, let me think about it, Okay, I don't, I don't really know the third one. I've, I've got two off the top of my head. I think third would be like, let me think of something like just ridiculous. I'm trying to think. I mean, obviously, like Dorian's back would be pretty cool, but I've already got Jordan Peters erectors, so I probably don't need Dorian's back. Um, I probably have, to be honest, is not natural, but I probably have like Nicholas Falud's hamstrings. Because if you search them up, you'll realize how stupid they are. Like, they, like, hang to the floor. So, yeah, I'd have, like, Nicholas Valud's hamstrings, Ben Howard's glutes, and Jordan Peters' erectors. <laughs> that, that would look, like, that would look so stupid. <laughs> that would look so stupid. So, yeah, that's what I'd have. Um, so, I got asked a question on periodization of the contest prep diet. I think I've covered this before, to be honest, guys. So, I've covered about, sort of, splitting up the diet with diet breaks. Very quick question on your him bean, um, whether it should be, I don't, I honestly think some people just don't watch my content, which is fair play, um, but someone asked whether your him bean should be spread throughout the day or taken in the morning, like, come on, come on guys, like, no, you don't spread th your him bean out throughout the day, you'll be feeling all kinds of fucked up, um, a very, very strong stimulant is your himbean, and you only want to be taking it pre-fasted cardio, and that's it. Um, you definitely don't want to be spreading your himbean across the day. You, I mean, I don't see any reason to do that. I think you'd, you'd not feel so good. Um, so yeah, don't do not do that. Don't spread your himbean out of the day. Um, if someone's told you to do that, ask them why, and then if they can't give you a good reason, then just please do not do it. Uh, what would my dream job be? Again, I, I'm, I'm sorry to be very boring in this answer, but to be honest, what I do right now is, is pretty much a dream job. Um, like, reality is obviously when I was back in, uh, younger, when I was interested in motorsport, it would have been to, like, be an F1. But now, nah. Like, the way I've seen F1 go as well in terms of, like, you know, based on the fact that when I was growing up, like, I was watching F1 in, like, the early 2000s, so like 2001, 2002, 2003, when it's like those big V10s and they sounded fucking amazing and there was a little bit more overtaking and like now it's just like they sound boring and obviously the, the money is amazing but it's like not doing things for the money. So yeah, not 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 a huge fan. Um, Brad, I'll have to answer your question. So when are lifting belts needed? Um, so I would personally, mate, to be honest, 
um, stay away from them as long as you possibly can and learn to engage your core and your erectors to stabilize any load that requires a belt. So yeah, for me, keep them out for as long as you can and then only add them in when like you really, really require them. So for me, the only position I require a belt is a, is a back squat. Um, I unfortunately have just developed a pattern where I, I almost require the belt. Um, this is through years of back squatting with a belt. So to, for me to take it away would be so foreign. So I'm just not going to. Um, I feel much more safe without a belt, or sorry, with a belt. But on a, on a deadlift, for example, as soon as I took away the belt, my lower back pain dr drastically reduced. Because funnily enough, I was actually utilizing my core, utilizing my erectors um, in the movement itself. So not having to rely on a belt to create almost false stability. So for people that actually experience lower back pain, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I'd actually aim to remove the belt from a lot of your movements. Um, obviously, you'll have to go a lot lighter first up, but as you strengthen that ability to utilize your core, um, your midsection strength, and then obviously your erector strength, I think that will cross-transfer massively into your ability to perform better and more, more safe movements as you move forwards. So finally, I'm gonna answer Holly's question. So Holly asks, uh, do you think it's beneficial to compete? Um, oh, sorry, do you think it's, it's the other way around. Do you think it's beneficial to, um, when you're being a, a fitness professional, um, to compete? So, um, and it works the same way, it works the other way as well. So um, when, like, so when I'm obviously looking to run a business and run a contest prep business, if I wasn't competing, I don't think it would work that well. So if I hadn't competed before, I don't think I'd be able to coach contest prep athletes that well. Um, do I think it's beneficial to uh, for a competitor to coach? No, I don't think you have to coach to be a competitor. But what you do learn is that you love, like, for example, obviously Jack, who coaches you, Jack, when he next competes, because he's got such an amazing support network around him of other people doing the same thing, his prep is going to be so much easier. Whereas when he was working as a PT and like people didn't really understand what he was doing, the environment is not as productive for being chilled out, relaxed, and just cracking through fat loss without a million questions about why are you doing this, why are you doing that. So I'm sure for you, Holly, I'm not sure what you do at the moment, but if it's not within the fitness industry, I'm, I'm imagining you're gonna get a lot of questions about why you're doing this, why you're doing that, why are you eating this, why are you eating that every single day? And that's just at the end of the day, it gets fucking annoying. So I don't get any questions like that. When I go for lunch, <laughs> I sit down and I, funnily enough, Danny doesn't ask me why I'm eating this, you know? So I think that it just makes life a little bit easier when you're in, a fitness in, in the fitness industry and you're competing. Um, but as a competitor, obviously you do not have to coach to be a good competitor there's plenty of good competitors out there that do not do coaching um and sometimes it can be beneficial because your motivation your drive for competing might be a bit better because your life doesn't revolve around everything to do with fitness you know you have that break so i think there's pros and cons of of being uh, in the fitness industry and competing so i hope that answers your question cool so we'll leave that there guys thanks again for watching um as always if you could give the video a like, if you're watching on YouTube, that'd be amazing. Again, trying to get like a video to like 100 likes or something like that would be cool. We just hit 5,000 subscribers on, on the YouTubes as well. So I really appreciate that. It means a lot. And it's helping me grow the channel. And hopefully in 2020, I'll do some like vlogs and things like that. Um, I don't really have the time, unfortunately, to do vlogs at the moment. But when I bring down my clients and I focus on the contest prep next year, I'll probably have some time to do some vlogs. So I'll look forward to doing that. And I'm sure you can look forward to that too. I'll try and like put some comedy in there like George does. Because I like watching George's vlogs, to be honest. So I'll ask him for some tips. Um, and other than that, yeah, screenshot this, put it on your stories, please, guys. And, and just generally share it around if you enjoyed it. Um, ask any questions on the topics in, in the comment section below on YouTube or DM me on Instagram. Um, and I will chat to you guys next week or see you at body power but i'll probably record this before body power most likely i hope i can because again next week's gonna be manic so i'll try my best to get solo 20 out cheers guys and chat to you soon bye